a recommended way. What you kind of do is do a storyline or a plot. And most stories, they start off, they give details, and then they hit some type of crescendo or climax in the story, and then afterwards is the resolution. So you have the problem or the crises, and then you have you know, the crescendo of it, and then you have resolution. And that's the way most narratives operate. Well, if you start with this story and say, okay, let's figure out where we're starting, you have to go, and I'm not trying to be silly, you start with chapter 19, which leads into chapter 20 because the author is giving a story. Chapter 19, we have the destruction of what two cities? Sodom and Gomorrah, they're destroyed. So if I'm going to plot this out, I'm going to make sure that I understand, okay, here's the context. The context is Sodom and Gomorrah have just been destroyed. Then we read into chapter chapter 20, Abraham journeyed from thence, that is wherever he was, towards the south country and dwelled, and he gives the names of Kadesh, Shur, and going to Gerar. And so we have Abraham, the next thing, he migrates. Why he migrates, we don't really know. We think... Some of the Bible scholars think that this is just the seasonal time that there's a migration. Some suggest that because of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, people moved out of the center of the plains, the more fertile lands, and tried to get away. And that makes sense to some of us because if you were living at that time and you were in the plains and all of a sudden you saw, well, let's rephrase this. If you saw Three Mile Island explode, okay, and fire coming down and wiping it out, which direction would you move? Would you move from here west, or would you try to get some different direction away from it? Okay, most of us would move away. Why? Because you forget the radiation. But if some you saw fire coming down from heaven, you would be inclined to probably put a little bit more distance between you and the place that just blew up because you don't know where it's happening next. And so he moves a bit, and he heads, actually heads west towards the Mediterranean Sea. And he heads all the way over to the area that we know later on as Philistia, the area where the Philistines were, the area where he wasn't mingling amongst uh, those for a long time. So he goes a little bit farther than what he's ever traveled before, farther west towards the coast. He goes to Gerar. When he gets there, the passage says that what happens is he introduces himself, gets to know a fellow that he's never met before. Follow on. Abraham said to his wife, uh, Sarah said of his wife, she is my sister, and Ahimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And so what happens here? That Ahimelech is the leader of Gerar. His name literally means my father is the king. And so he is the prince. He is the ruler. He is in charge of this region of Philistia. And he and Abraham meet. Somehow, some way, it comes out that he, he takes uh, Sarah to be a part of his harem. Now, in this story, okay, we never get an explanation why it happens. There is the possibility that it could be just purely lust. That he, being an an individual who's a ruler, could afford to have multiple people in his harem, and he desired this woman, and she was beautiful to look upon. The, um, The factor that we know is, Sarah is how old at this time? Take a guess. She's what? She's 90 years old. She's older than you, brother. You just celebrated a birthday yesterday, right? Yeah, okay, and she's got you beat by five more years, okay? And so this gal is 90 years old. It could be that her beauty is retained. That's a possibility that that's the reason he did it, is because he saw her, he desired her, he took her. There's another possibility that, that could be in the text, and I, I think this has some bearing to it and to the whole story. If you go 
if you go through the account and think about this, there is Abraham moving into a region he's not moved before. He's meeting another territorial leader. Okay, and as a territorial leader, they're going to have to try to make some uh, some type of treaty alliances. How did you often in the Old Testament days? How did they often seal an alliance? By marriage, by some type of a marriage situation. The reason I think that's a possibility is if you go to the last verse of the chapter. The story unfolds that the individuals, that, that Ahimelech takes Sarah and she's part of his harem. But it says that he never came unto her. There was no physical contact between him and her. Some say this implies that it was just like the very first night, the second night, the third night that she became part of the harem, that God came and spoke to him and said, don't you touch this woman. However, if you go to the very last verse, the very last verse says that God afflicted the entire household of Ahimelech with a problem. The problem was what? According to verse 18, is it? The Lord had fast closed what? All the wombs of the house of Ahimelech, okay, or Bimelech, excuse me, I'm saying it in a different way, uh, because of Sarah, Abraham, Sarah's wife. How do the people know that the wombs were closed if it's one or two days? Typically, that would take a longer period of time, that it could take a few weeks before they would know that they've got a problem that scares all of these people. So there's a strong possibility that she became a peace alliance token and she was given and it wasn't that the man was that attracted that he had to go in under her the very first night but there's there's a time period that passed that could be uh, could be days weeks enough that they are aware that there is this problem enough that they know that they've been that there there's a punishment that's fallen upon the entire household of Abimelech because of um, taking Sarah into another man's wife into his harem. Another man's wife. He didn't know it. Okay, that's, that's part of the story. So he takes uh, Sarah into his, into his uh, harem, and as a result, he and Abraham, they're going to be good friends. Okay, now he takes Sarah because he thinks Sarah is related to Abraham, not as Abraham's wife, but as the sister. Because who says this? Abraham says it and Sarah says it. And so the story unfolds that as they're, they're doing all this, that God comes to Abimelech in the dream by night, verse 3, and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man. How would you like that for a middle of a dream God speaking to you? Okay, you're a dead man. For the woman that you have taken, she's another man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her. He said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself, said he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocency of my hands, I did this thing. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. In other words, I knew that you were tricked into this. I knew that you didn't do anything uh, that was malicious or that, that was so, so vile that you had to take another man's wife physically, you know, et cetera, et cetera. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I, not you, to, suffered I you not to touch her. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he's a prophet. And he shall pray for you, and you shall live. And if you restore her not, you know that you shall surely die, you and all that are yours. Woo, tough statement. So what you have is a story. He takes, the, he takes Sarah as, his, as part of his harem, unwittingly, 
he's thinking she's a sister to this other to this man, not a not a uh, wife to him. And God comes and challenges Abimelech and says to him, "You, you know, this is wrong. You got to stop. You don't go any further. You got to return him." And Abimelech, in turn, challenges Abraham and goes to Abraham and says, "What in the world?" Well, watch what he says to him. He calls Abraham the next day and he says, Therefore Abimelech arose early in the morning, called all of his servants and told them everything that's going on. And the men were afraid. Everybody's afraid because if, if we don't get this woman back to her proper husband, we're all going to die and God's punishing in here. And then Abimelech calls to Abraham and he says, What have you done to us? What have I done that offended you, that you had brought on me and on my kingdom such a great sin? You have done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What sawest thou that you did this thing? In other words, Abraham's silent for a moment, and Abimelech is just, he's appalled. Why in the world do you do this? And Abraham says and answers, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place. And these men will slay me for my wife's sake. There we get a little bit of culture again. This same thing happened in Genesis chapter 12. And at that time when it happened, uh, here, um, uh, Abraham went down into Egypt and he was afraid for his life. And he knew that very frequently in some, of these, in some of these regions, if you killed this man's wife, if you really wanted her, you killed the husband and then you take the wife. And so he knew that that was a possibility. He knew that that almost happened to him in Egypt. He's thinking that it's going to happen here with Abimelech in this region. And so out of fear, he, gives, he tells his reason. Then he goes on and makes a couple other statements here that are a little bit eye-opening for us. And he says, they will slay me for my wife's sake, therefore I, we lied. Verse 12, and yet indeed, here's the fact, she is my sister. We both had the same dad. Different moms, but different dads. She is the daughter of my father but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And again, back in those early points of history, marrying somebody who was somewhat close, that did happen in different cultures at that time period. And yet, and then he goes on and says, And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said unto her, This is your kindness which you shall show unto me. Every place whither we come, say of me, He's my brother. Not my husband, because my life's threatened, but he's my brother. And Abimelech took sheep and oxen, men servants and women servants, and gave them to Abraham and restored him, Sarah his wife. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee, dwell where it pleaseth thee. And again, I think that that kind of indicates that what this was all about was a treaty. Because these two, especially Abraham coming from a region that had just been destroyed, here Abimelech seeing, knowing about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, alliances were important because of threats. And so he's wanting to maintain this alliance, even though he's been kind of dealt a bad deck here, a bad card by what Abraham has done to him. And so the story goes on, if we're going to plot it, Abimelech makes things right, he returns Sarah, and he also confronts Abraham, says, Abraham, what you've done is absolutely dastardly how you treated me and lied to me. Abraham confesses, yes, I did do it, and he openly tells him, here's why I did it, because I wasn't trusting the Lord, because I, you know, I wasn't doing what was right and makes confession to this guy. And then Sarah is returned with gifts. And some of the gifts that come with it, as we read a little bit further, um, Sarah, he said unto Sarah, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. He's, he's paying her a thousand pieces of silvers and says, Behold, this is to be a covering for your eyes unto all that are with thee and with all others. Thus she was reproved. Okay, 
What is that covering of the eyes? There are so many different ideas that authors and, and writers say that did, did he say, okay, you take and you make a veil out of all these coins and they cover your face so you keep your face hidden from other people as a reminder that you only in that culture reveal your face to your husband and don't do this again. Or is it a symbolical thing that what I've done is I'm trying to cover up your shame but what you've done has been reprehensible. I'm try Whatever and the understanding is that I know from what study I've done is that nobody seems to have a good handle on what did he mean by that other than it was a rebuke to her. He was being generous. He was heaping coals of fire upon her head but it was more of a rebuke than anything else. Saying, and this is the possibility, here's, here's some treasures. You can take them with you and you're going to be embarrassed before all of my servants and all of your servants who know what has been done. But this is kind of our peace token to say that there's no animosity between me and you, but you're still going to be ashamed. Because what she tried to do was, was, others are going to look and say it was dastardly. Well, she gets it, she goes home, and then the story as it wraps up, verse 17, Abraham prays unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So you have then the closure of this story that he prays and everything turns out hunky-dory after that. The big, the big question is, how did Abraham get into this mess? What did Abraham do? And so if we were going to just say, okay, here's several truths from this story, and there's so many, and it's a complicated story, several different truths that stand out. Let me just share them with you, just for uh, a different type of Bible study this evening. Several thoughts instead of one main thought, just several that stand out. I would say this, that number one, what this story teaches me is susceptibility of we saints. How we are, we are vulnerable to do anything if we're not careful. We can fall into the stupidest, into the, into the grossest of situations if we're not careful. Why did Abraham do this? Now, there's this, I put in your question up here, why did he do it again? This is the second time that this type of story shows up. In Genesis 12, which is about 20 years before Genesis 20. Abraham had the same thing happen to him where he flees into a new region and he says that this is my sister and she becomes part of the Pharaoh's harem and there's sickness that afflicts the entire harem and they come to Abraham and say, what do you do? What did you like? Well, I, I didn't lie completely. She is my half-sister and they, kick, they tell him to get out. Now here's how some people deal with this text. They say that Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 are the same story because nobody would make the same mistake twice. Okay? And so they give several, they, they say it's just a repetition of the same dumb thing that Abraham did. I don't agree with that. The reasons I don't agree is because of several facts in the two stories. In the two stories, you have different places. One story is talking about going into Egypt. One is Philistia. You have two different monarchs. One's called Pharaoh. One is called Abimelech. Okay? One is uh, the different circumstances. Abraham goes down into Egypt because of a famine and that first time in Genesis 12, but this time he's migrating as if it's a, a different reason, different season. The different way of revealing what's going on. God revealed to Abimelech in a dream and in a conversation, Pharaoh were not told how he found out about it, other than the chastisement. The uh, different results. In the Genesis 12, he's kicked out of the land. In Genesis 20, he's invited to stay but behave himself. So there's two different accounts. And some still wonder, why, how can there be two, how could Abraham do the same dumb thing twice in his life? 
how is that possible? And I look at it and say, because he's, he's human. Is it possible that even somebody who has faith like Abraham, that somebody who is a model in so many different respects, is it possible that he could commit some dumb act, some stupid sin, and then repeat that same thing 20 years later? Well, let's, let's take it and rephrase that. Is it possible for you and me to repeat something 20 days later, 20 months later, 20 years later. And so I think that, that human nature says this story is not remote. It is not ab- absurd. It is very possible that even godly people can put themselves in some really messy situations. The fact is we're capable of repeating some of the, some of the sins that are, some, you know, let's, let's categorize them for a second, some really bad things. Okay, like giving your wife away to somebody else. It's pretty, I think that ranks right up there as pretty bad. Okay, Abraham's reasoning, why he did it, is shown in his confession. And in the confession, it gives us a little bit of an insight what this man was thinking. The bottom line is he's not trusting the Lord. He's having some spiritual uh, crises at this moment. But if you go back and look at what he says in verses 11, 12, 13, and just highlight his reasoning when he's confronted by Abimelech. He says basically this, I feared you. Can the fear of people cause us to make bad decisions? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So he says, I feared you. And because I'm fearful of you people, I assumed the worst about you. Now again, I'm going to throw this, story, this context up to you. Could he fear this people because of some things that have just happened in the land? Think about it. He is escaping from more of a, from the central part of the plains, and the cities of the plains have just been destroyed. Okay? If you were living on the outskirts, okay, and you saw the smoke, you saw the cities destroyed, and you're a superstitious people, would you want people migrating from that area that's just been destroyed, or would you want them to stay away from you? Superstitious people would typically say what? Stay away because I don't know if you're part of the reason. If you're carrying the plague with you, so to speak. And so Abraham doesn't know these people. This is the first time in the region. And so he's assuming the very worst about them, and therefore they become bigger and you know, a bigger, stronger boogeyman because he just doesn't know that much about them. And he justifies it which often we can do. We can justify by taking some partial facts, some part, partial information, and he says, well, it's partially true. She is my sister. That's a fact. But the relationship that he has with her is more than brother and sister. They have a more intimate relationship and a more sacred relationship called husband-wife. And so he's minimizing the one and, and, uh, or maximizing the one and minimizing the other. And as a result, he's operating in an area that he's justifying what he's done, what he's doing. I think there's a phrase here that kind of throws me when he says this, that it comes out of Abraham's mouth. Look at in verse 13. It came to pass, he's talking to Abimelech. It came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house. What does that strike you as when you first read that? When God caused me to wander from my father's house. Is he saying, I'm so glad that God moved me. Or does there, is there a sense when God caused me to wander? Is there a sense that God put me in, the, in a bad spot? It's, it kind of reminds me that he is sounding a little bit like Adam in the Garden of Eden, that the problem I get into is because of the woman that you gave me. 
And God, you, you're causing me to wander in this area. And, and this is kind of a, a, a difficult situation. Then he goes on and he says, besides, this is something we planned a long time ago. And, you know, we, we talked about this years ago. We talked about this 20 years ago, that this is what we were going to do, and this is the way we've always done it. And it kind of, you know, it's nothing new. It's just kind of like this happened because we've done it. And since we did it before, and, you know, well, it, it, you know, it, it kind of worked. You know, we, we kind of got out of trouble. I forget all the consequences that happened in Egypt, but it kind of worked. My life was spared. And so he's rationalizing, he's reasoning through this, and it's showing that we as saints have to be very, very, very careful because we can get ourselves into real pickles by thinking in some type of skewered thinking, by fearing people. Let, let me see if I can put it this way. I think the warning is real clear. The warning for you and me is this. Be careful we don't fear people more than we fear God. We get such a fear of people that all of a sudden, oh man, rather than being honest and having integrity, we're going to kind of lie because we think that somebody might be mad at us. Um, we fear people more than we fear God, so giving out the truth. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to speak because they might be upset with me if I tell them the truth. We fear people because, you know, the coworkers, the the co- co-workers, family, they might give me a hard time and difficult time if I try to raise my kids for the things of the Word of God and they give me a hard time and I, I don't want my family mad at me and so we won't be as pressed with the Word of God. Be careful that we don't start falling into this trap of fearing people more than fearing God. Beware of this. When you, when you have something in the background, when there's been something that you find yourself that it's a weakness, that you've, you've toyed with something you shouldn't toy with, or you have a tendency towards something, cut it off. Cut it off clearly if it has caused problems in the past. How did he say that in Matthew 5? If your hand offends thee, cut it off. If your eye offends thee, pluck it out. Take drastic measures. Abraham, take drastic measures. You shouldn't even dabble with this idea of she's my sister, he's my brother. It got you in a big trouble before. Don't dabble with it. Don't even go near it. Just cut it off. Don't bring it up in your vocabulary. It's kind of like when we do premarital counseling. I was dealing with somebody last night and we were talking again. Certain words you don't even put in your vocabulary. You know, if you, when, you, when you make a commitment, you, just, you don't bring up the words like for a married couple, don't bring up divorce. Don't bring it into the conversation. Why? Because if, it le- if it's there and we, we toy with it in our mind, who knows where we can go with the stuff. And so be very, very careful. Set high standards. The high standards are God's standards that you are husband and wife, the sanctity of the marriage. This is it. This is the relationship. Don't even bring cultural ideas about brother and sister. This is the relationship. Set your standards high that you don't even go into any other area. Come on. Be careful, he is saying. Susceptibility of saints. I think there's another thought here. I think very clearly we have the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is the idea that God can do anything, but I'm going to add to it this thought. God can do anything he chooses to do. Okay, so don't get into this discussion. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? God can do anything he chooses to do. And it's very clear in this text. In what ways, let's, let's see if you can get some of this. What ways is the power, the majesty, the sovereignty of God illustrated in this story? The dream. Can God invade people's dreams if he chooses to? 
Oh, yeah. I don't want him in my dreams because of some of the things I dream. But he can do it. What is, somebody else said something here. Sovereignty. Same thing? Okay. What else? Does God know where Abraham went? He's outside the promised land. Remember back in Bible days, gods were considered to be the God of Lebanon only. The God of Palmyra. The God of Cleona. That was common concept. And God is changing this. He goes wherever, anywhere, and he's aware. Totally aware of where his children are. Where, in fact, not only his children, but even in this story, does he know about the, uh, the non-believers? Can he control what happens to them? How so? In this story, what did God do to the people? He made them barren. So you have these ideas. God's aware of all that's happening. God can invade a dream. God can infect or affect somebody's body if he chooses. In fact, let's add to that. He can deal with multiple people at one time. Multiple individuals, physically, for good or for bad. God can, you can define that in your own terms. God can deal with these things this way. God is amazing what he's able to do. And there's something in his sovereignty that is amazing in this text. He can keep people from furthering their sin. Okay, and I think this is a profound thought that's illustrated in this story. Okay, if we, if we, let me see if I can put up these. Although God chooses not to prevent all sin, that's a fact, Correct? God has chosen not to prevent all sin. What has he given each and every one of us? He's given us free will. And with that free will, does he allow us to choose obedience or disobedience? He does. He's allowed that in the Garden of, uh, Garden of Eden. And it's passed on to us because of the disobedience of our ancestors, Adam and Eve. It's passed on to us, all of us, that tendency towards sin. That we, will, we are given free will. And more often than, than what we want to admit, the things that we don't want to do, we do. The things that we, that we don't want to do, we do. The things that we wish we would do, we don't do. That Romans 7 passage. And so God in his sovereignty is not threatened by allowing us to be able to choose and allowing us freedom. If we didn't have that free will, if we didn't have that freedom, then we would just be automatons. Then we would just be robotic. And God wants us to love him with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole body, and so we're giving us that opportunity to choose to love him. Otherwise, it would be forced. So he gives us free will. And yet, even though he doesn't limit all sin, does he have limits? The answer is yes. Can somebody go too far and then God stop it? Yes. There's multiple passages that talk about that. That God says there's a limit that he'll place. So he allows freedom. It's like he allows us to walk anywhere on this stage of life, but he puts up barriers. You're not going to cross this barrier. That's sovereignty. Sovereignty going along with free will. And in this passage, it is clearly seen when he says to Abimelech, he makes that comment that he said, I, verse 6, I withheld you from sinning against me. I've stopped you from doing anything further. I, I, you were, there's a bad circumstance. It happened. You in your innocency and in your ignorance, and yet ignorance is no excuse. He says, I kept you from making the bad situation worse. 
by I kept you so you were in control of your own desires. I kept you so you didn't go in unto this woman. And so God in his sovereignty is clearly displayed in this passage how he limited, which brings us to another fact that's very important, the security that we have in God. The security in God. In this story, God is very, very merciful. The mercy abounds in this text. It's odd. Grant you the story is bizarre by our culture that some man would give his wife as a token for a, for a coalition, but it happened in Bible days. And so here God shows his mercy. He protected his promise. He protected the promise. Let me set the scene. Two chapters earlier, God had just appeared to Abraham and Sarah. And God had said to Sarah, you will bear a child in your old age. And she did what in her tent door? She laughed. Do you remember I left off a phrase here? You shall bear the child when? He's within a year. Within the next year, you're going to bear this child. So that by this time next year, you're going to be, you're going to be a mom at age 90. And she didn't believe it. She laughed, and he says, you laughed for unbelief. And uh, now, let's fast forward. In the meantime, since that promise has been made, there has been the visitation by the angels who had a meal with and Christ, who had a meal with Abraham. They went to Sodom and Gomorrah. They destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham saw the destruction. Abraham packs up his family. He moves several miles further west, dozens of miles further west, which took some time. Then all of a sudden he gets into this region and he poses a treaty with this man, Abimelech if that's the case, and that that's why he took him. And God keeps Abimelech away from Sarah. Okay, we're talking within these first three months since the promise that this is going to have to happen. This move and the destruction, the time frame is narrowing. What if Abimelech had gone in unto Sarah? Could that have tainted the promise of God if she doesn't bear Abraham's child? Because remember, Abraham's old. And so there's this a whole, this was a jeopardy to God's promise. And God protected and kept the promise. And it wasn't because Abraham was helping. It wasn't because Abraham was so concerned about this promise. He put Sarah and his own future in, in jeopardy by giving her to this man. There's another character in Scripture that got a promise. A promise that, that about a child. And this man was so concerned about the integrity of God's promise, he did not touch his wife for an extended period of time. Even though he could, he didn't. Do you remember who I'm talking about? Joseph where? Joseph and Mary in the New Testament. That because he knew the promise said that she not only needs to be a virgin to conceive, but she needed to be a virgin at the birth, the delivery of Christ. And so Joseph put himself, even at that, self, that self-control mode, that he says, I do not want to jeopardize any, and, and in, infringe in any way, shape, or form upon the promise that God said. Well, Abraham lost that integrity. He lost that zeal for the promise, but God protected it. God not only protects his promise that he made to make sure that this child was Abraham's child, not somebody else's man. Not that there could even claim that. It was very apparent that God protected. God not only protected his promise by keeping, this child, keeping Sarah away from somebody else's, but God also protected his prophet. Here's an interesting phrase. 
that God, for the only time in this text, in this section of Scripture, calls Abraham his prophet. We've jumped down into it. He says in verse 7, Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet. When did Abraham predict the future like a prophet does? Can you think of a time? I can't either because he didn't do that part of prophesying. But in the Old Testament, a prophet was not only one who could foretell the future, what else could prophets do? They could foretell the word of God. They could preach the word of God. So they might predict the future, but otherwise they could be preaching the word of God and they were called a prophet. Did Abraham have the truth? Yes. Did he preach it to his family? We saw that just the last couple of weeks in Genesis 18, that he was already, everybody in his household, he was giving them the truth. And God is saying, this is one, and this is amazing. Think about this. God is saying to Abimelech, who is offended by this believer, God is saying he's a prophet. I, I think most of us would say, I wouldn't want to admit that he's my prophet. But he says, he says, he's my prophet, and so I want you to, and he tells Abimelech that you, you need to treat him right. Abimelech could have taken it out on Abraham, but God protects Abraham. God even tells him that he is one that he needs to deal with him properly. If you look at verse 7, he talks about how you need to ask him to pray for you. You need to ask him to minister to you. And so God is, is upholding Abraham in spite of what Abraham has done. I think that's amazing. I think it is absolutely amazing that Abraham has this type of a God that holds him secure even when he blows it. Even when he does something stupid. You've got to ask a question. Why would God do this for Abraham? Why would God remain so loyal to Abraham when Abraham has risked God's program? There's a reason for it. You've got to think this through. He made a covenant with him. Remember three chapters or five chapters earlier in chapter 15? God said, I am making a covenant with you. I'm making a treaty with you. I'm making a contract with you. And he told Abraham, cut all the animals and lay part of the animal here, part of the animal there. And it was a blood covenant. It was so serious that this idea, and they did do this at times in, these, in Bible days, that they could take an animal and they would sever the animal and basically saying, this could happen to me if I don't keep up my end of it. Okay, you know how some people, you know, cross my heart and hope to die. You know, if I, if I break my word, woe be unto me. Well, that's what God was doing in Genesis 15. And so he has him put the animals there, the birds, the, the heifers, the sheep, into. And then, in that Genesis 15 story, who walks through the animals to sign the covenant? Just God. Did Abraham have to do it? No. It's an unconditional covenant. It was a covenant that was one-sided. A covenant that God said, I will remain loyal and faithful to you. Not because you are so perfect, but because I am so perfect. I will remain loyal to you and, and I'm going to be true because I am promising you. You, no matter what, I, this is my commitment. Here is God's faithfulness. This is God's security that he provided for Abraham, that even though Abraham in this story, he really blew it big time, God was faithful. Can you think of a covenant, a contract, a promise that God has made to us that is not dependent upon us to be kept? Okay. Okay, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. Nobody can pluck us out. Let's, they're both dealing with what, what experience? Our salvation experience. 
Our salvation experience is when we come by and say, Jesus Christ, I need you to give me spiritual life. Because me and in and of myself, I'm a sinner. I can't merit it. I can't deserve it. And so we come to Christ and say, you and you alone are the only perfect one who can provide me forgiveness. And the way you can do that is you gave your life a perfect life for a sinner like me. And therefore, you could pay for my sin. And he did it. He spends his life on the cross. He yells out, it is paid in full right before he dies. And then he gives to us, when we call upon him, he gives unto us eternal life. And those who have eternal life, they shall never, 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 five times is the, is the stress in John 10, they shall never perish and neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. In other words, once we call upon Christ, he moves within us, he becomes a part of us, and he never leaves us nor forsakes us. He cannot deny us, Titus says, because, or Timothy says, because he is faithful even if we're not faithful. It all depends. We're kept by salvation, not because of us. It doesn't depend upon us. Our salvation, our security, our eternal hope is not based on you and I performing any certain way or acting any certain way. It is because of God's work, God's faithfulness to us. Now, flip side of that, if God is that loyal to us, how then, and that's what he writes in Romans 6, how shall we sin? That grace may abound? God forbid if he has treated us that way, our response should be, I don't want to offend him. I don't want to embarrass him. But the point is, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why? Because God is faithful who has called us. The security of the believer, demonstrated in this text. Something else. There's the shame. The shame of the offender. The, the, the passage just unfolds that Abraham for all that God has done for him, for the promise that God, for the grace that God shows him, for the mercy, for the faithfulness that God is demonstrating. you got to think, how in the world does Abraham do this? Let me rephrase the question. Does Abimelech or Abraham act more like the believer? Abimelech. Abimelech is more righteous in his conduct than Abraham. Read the whole story. Again, you look at it. Abimelech says to God, he say, comes to God, he says, Lord, will you slay, verse 4, a righteous nation? He said, and he goes on, he said, you know, they said this, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I did this, but I didn't know. I didn't know. By the way, some people will go to this and they'll ask this question. Was Abimelech, was he a saved man? Was he a, a believer? And that's why he and Abraham got along. Well, I don't know, but I can show you this out of this text. To him, who was a man growing up in a region that typically was not filled with believers, what does he think about God? This, this is obvious. He believes this God is real and alive. He has a conversation with him. He talks back. He's not thinking this is pizza late at night that's in his dream. He's believing this is God. And he uses titles here, Elohim, a name, a title for God. He's speaking to him. He converses with him. He believes this God, who is the God of Abraham, is not confined to a region like the most local deities. He is seeing this God as being a powerful God, great powers, the ability to be able to chastise his people, the ability to be able to punish them for something that, that they did in innocence, but it was wrong. And so he is, he's got respect for this God. He is responding to this God. He is thinking, this is a God of justice. He even asks, will you slay righteous people who did things in innocency? 
And he's thinking, you are a powerful God, but you're not this one of these crazy deities that we read about in mythology that have a rage of temper, and they wipe out a whole bunch of people. He's saying that's not the case. You are a just person. So in this conversation, he's talking about God from a biblical point of view, that God hates sin, that God has power, that God is just. Maybe, just maybe, some of the influence of knowing what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened in the region, you know, the rumor mill is abounding that cities in the, you know, miles away have just been absolutely annihilated by some deity, and all of a sudden he gets this stranger in here, and then this deity, this man is, God is talking to him. So whatever the reasons, and however this fills out, this guy has somewhat of an awareness, okay? Is it enough to be saved? I don't know if he's a believer, I don't know what happened after this story. But here's what I do know is that the believer, the one who has already been declared justified by faith, doesn't act like it. He doesn't act as in such a high degree as Abimelech does. Abimelech is told that you, by God that you need to return the wife. You need to stop with all this. And what does he do? Abimelech he's already says he believes what he's told in his dream. He is one, he goes and confronts Abraham. He, you know, and think about this. Think about this whole point. This is the shame of the believer. When he's having this conversation, if you were Abraham and Abimelech says to you in verse 9, he says, Why, what have you done to us? What have I done to offend you that you brought on me and on my kingdom this great sin? You have done deeds unto me that nobody should do to another person. That's a fact. And Abraham doesn't respond. There's silence. Abimelech says unto him, what did you see that you did this thing? At, at this moment, if you were Abraham, what would you have thought or said? What would you, let, let's rephrase that, what would you feel at this moment? That this man, you know you put him in jeopardy. You know you threatened his entire tribe after he's shown you nothing but kindness. Should there not be some form of embarrassment? Should there not be some form of shame? That as a believer you say, I blew this one. You know, I, I, you know, and so Abimelech, he restores Sarah. We already mentioned that. There's no retaliation. He gives the gifts, the covering of the eyes we don't understand. What would you say? How would you feel if all of a sudden you were caught stealing from your coworkers? And they, they approached you and said, how could you do this? You say you're a believer. What if all of a sudden you're caught in a lie that you've said to your boss? And you're found out that you've been lying to, to him for quite a while. How would you feel? How would you feel if all of a sudden one of your coworkers or neighbors found out and they came to you and said, I heard you've been saying this. And you go, uh, 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 yeah, I know it came from you. Several people said it came from you. Yeah. That tract you just gave me last week, that's about worthless. How would you feel if all of a sudden your neighbor comes over and sees that you didn't give him back the tools that you borrowed or the books that you borrowed that you knew should go back, but time got by and you got more embarrassed, but now they know. Your, your relatives hear you just lose your temper and the lingo goes after you've been telling them about church and you've been telling them about the way God answers your prayer. Okay? There's the shame that you would have before the lost. There's, there's an absolute shame. It's not worth the risk, Abraham. You lost your testimony. It wasn't worth it. You shouldn't have done it. Be careful, believer. 
Okay, so what do you do next? Watch how this story ends. This is grace. This is mercy. It is the service of the tainted. It's what God says to Abraham as he closes out this story. Abraham, you blew it. You understand you blew it. It's terrible. But Abraham, here's what I want you to do. God requires of Abraham, that he tells Abimelech, you tell Abraham, I want you, I want you to pray. You are the prophet. You just proved you're a good intercessor down in chapter 18. You prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah, and they would have been spared if Lot had done his job. Now I want you to pray for Abimelech's household that they get spared. And here's what happens. God told told Abimelech to have him do it. And we read in verse 17. So Abraham prayed unto God. Really? You're a believer who has just blown it big time and God is going to hear you? Well, look at the next phrase. And God healed Abimelech. His wife, his maidservants, and bare children. For God had fast closed. All because Sarah, Abraham's wife, this whole episode. God listened to this believer even after he'd done such a dastardly deed when he confesses it, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's mercy. That's grace. That when we fall down into sin, God doesn't cast us off. When we fall down into sin, by the way, that doesn't relieve us from responsibilities towards others. Even if we've blown it and had a, had a passion of temper once again, we still have response. Okay, Peter... You denied me three times in the garden or in the courtyard. Weeks later, God says, you go and you preach downtown and in the midst of those people downtown, it's probably going to include some of the very people who heard you deny me. Jeremiah quits preaching. He is so discouraged, he is so upset that he just quits. He tells the king, I've had it. He leaves Jerusalem. He marches away because he is upset with the Jewish people. They don't listen to him. They've been mocking him. And he gets back home to his town and the Spirit of God says, you got to go back. you got to go back and give another message to the king. And so he has to march all the way back to the king, back to Jerusalem. And though he had stormed out in a rage and denied that he would ever preach again, he's told, get up and speak to the king. Oh, and by the way, the message that you are supposed to tell these people, the people that you had a tantrum in front of, a tantrum of discouragement and depression, you tell them this message, trust God. (laughs) I got to say a message that I didn't live up to. That's grace. That's grace that all of a sudden God still cares for those people that he wants them to hear. This is grace that God would still use us despite what we have done at times, how we fall flat on our face. This is grace, how God can take a newfound humility and use it to impact other people. That if we come to our point where we say, I was wrong, that God can use us, that God can make a difference through your life. That's grace. That's a story of just absolute profound, profound grace in the spite of all the guilt that he had. What you have in the story is you have where we sang already this evening, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Maybe we've, we've tried the Lord, but he still wants to use us. What grace. What a God we serve. Well, it's a God we can pray to, so let's take advantage of it this evening. Let's pray and let God use us. Despite our warts and wobbles and everything else, let's go to him in prayer.